0: Hello, I'm Rena Grobe and I'm Madvi Romani and this is Misinformed. A show where we'll be talking about our latest internet obsessions. Serena, so, what did you get obsessed with this week? As I'm sure everybody has seen, Joe Biden has won the election in the United States along with his vice president Kamala Harris. And Kamala Harris is not only going to be the first woman, but she's also going to be the first woman of color in the White House. And after this was announced, I sort of saw a flurry of Instagram posts and just general fanfare about Kamala Harris being in office. Now, while I don't want to diminish the significance of this for an American woman of color, it did kind of strike me as odd to see a lot of European and or specifically German women sort of celebrating this victory as though they didn't live in a country that has been run by a woman for the last 15 years. And I get, obviously, that there are different hurdles for women of color and white women, but it was still kind of an odd thing to see people celebrate this in a way as if Finland, New Zealand, the Philippines, Taiwan, as if all these other countries in the world didn't also have female heads of state. And so this week, I've just sort of been thinking about why are we so America-focused? What is, you know, all this about looking at America as leading the narrative? Specifically, or I guess more broadly, this idea of the West. What is the West? What does it mean? Does it mean anything? And just why are we still letting American news dominate
1: yeah, I mean, it's great that Kamala Harris is going to be in the White House. That's really amazing. I think part of it is that we're just all celebrating news for women everywhere. Like, it's good for us to celebrate everyone's achievements and milestones like this. On the other hand, yeah, like you say, in the East, for example, India, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, they have all had women prime ministers and leaders. I mean, ages ago, really ages ago, yet in the West, we don't really celebrate that or mark it as a massive milestone like this one. And also we see those countries just from the perspective of the West as being kind of backwards, not really gender equal, whereas if you really look at it objectively, women have been in power much earlier in those countries, which is supposed to be the beacon of democracy and liberalism and all that kind of stuff. And your comment is so interesting because it follows a recent article by Pankaj Mishra, the Indian writer in the New York Review of Books. His article is called Global Illusions. It's about the narcissism of the West and the intellectual narcissism of the West. He points out that in academia and historically, everywhere, the West has always been kind of posited as the light of the world and Western liberalism is the model that all other countries will follow and that the West has sorted out everything. And as we can see by that exact election, Biden versus Trump, it's not true at all. There are big inequalities in the West. There's a lot of violence. The West is pretty much fucked. And he points out that this kind of myth was... Perpetuated a lot by the Cold War, when the West was opposed to the communist sort of East and Russia and all that kind of stuff in China. But there's also a problem with, you know, which stories are being told, who's writing the history books, all of that kind of stuff. The feminist philosopher Lorna Binlayson recently wrote, "...as surely as terrible crimes have been committed by socialist states, the history of liberal nations is a history of systemic acquisitive violence." From the genocide of the indigenous populations, to chattel slavery, to contemporary regime change and humanitarian intervention, she puts this in quotation marks, This much is uncontroversial, even though it may not be thought relevant, or polite, perhaps, to talk about it. As Mishra points out, the glowing accounts of the free world as the custodian of liberalism and democracy and the heir to enlightenment suppresses a lot of awkward facts, for example, That Voltaire described black people as animals with hardly any intelligence. Kant believed that dark skin constituted a clear proof of stupidity and that women were unsuited for public life. And John Stuart Mill assumed that Indians were barbarians and unfit for self-rule. The fact
0: that America has been able to brand itself as a democracy and has us all repeating this, is ridiculous because America is not a democracy, (laughs) fundamentally, their structure. Like, as we saw with this election, they are not a democracy. But in regards to what you said, Kwame Anthony Paya wrote an article for The Guardian called There is No Such Thing as Western Civilization, in which he argues that this term that we use of the West is a modern invention. So he points out that the very idea of the West to name a heritage and an object of study doesn't really emerge until the 1890s during the heated era of imperialism, and that it gains broader currency only in the 20th century, around the time of the First World War, when Oswald Spengler wrote the book The Decline of the West, which was actually a book that first introduced many people to this concept of the West. Natalie Wynn, of ContraPoints, who I love and adore, She talks about how today a lot of people, specifically people like Jordan Peterson, like to refer to the West as a homogenous idea and repeat this myth of Western ideas, Western culture. She specifically cites of idea, for example, when Donald Trump is in Poland and he's at a rally, he talks about how Western people, Western ideals, and Western civilization will prevail. But as Natalie points out, The West does not exist in the way that we think it does. So they are presenting it as if it's a linear history that starts with the ancient Greeks and goes till nowadays. And so that we are the inheritance of their philosophy of democracy. And she says that the history of the West is actually a history of change and contradictions. How can it be that certain people nowadays are arguing that, for example, queer people or people of color are a threat to Western civilization, which like in the case of, you know, like Jordan Peterson, he keeps thinking that all young millennials are special snowflakes who want people to respect their gender pronouns. But she says that surely you can't corrupt Western values, whatever that may mean, Western values, if... Everything up until now has been a history of change, of enlightenment, of, you know, the Middle Ages, which surely, if we're going to start at the Greeks and then go through a linear passage of time to end up here, the Middle Ages is also part of our history, so we changed so much from there. So surely, you know, Luther, right, he was unhappy about things, so he nailed stuff to the door in Wittenberg, you know what I mean? Our history is one of change, our history in quotation marks, so...
1: Yeah, so like the Enlightenment, which is supposed to be fundamental to Western thought and everything, was severely questioned by the West and the people at that time. Same with Luther, same with a lot of things. Also, yeah, it's fundamentally racist, this idea of the West. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, we keep bringing up this idea that we are the inheritance of the Greeks, and thus the way our civilization exists nowadays is the way civilization should be. Also, what's really important
1: to note here is this idea of the West was created by white.
0: Yeah. So Kwame Anthony Appiah, in the same essay, actually points out that Herodotus, who was a Greek historian writing in the 5th century BC, thought of the world as being divided into three parts, into Asia, into Libya, and to the rest of Europe. But as a Greek, he was more familiar with what he called Libya than he was with Europeans, and so we tend to equate the West with whiteness and Europeanness, and with Christian-Judean values. So, if what we're basing all of this on is the Greeks, well, then that doesn't add up because he wasn't familiar with Europe in that way. Also, because all of these ancient Greek texts actually were lost and destroyed in the Middle Ages. Had they not been copied and translated by Muslim scholars, to quote Apia again. In Baghdad of the 9th century, Abbasid Caliphate, the palace library, featured the works of Plato and Aristotle, Pythagoras and Euclid, translated into Arabic. During the Dark Ages, when Christian Europeans made little contribution to the study of Greek classical philosophy, and many of the texts were lost, these works were preserved by Muslim scholars. Much of our modern understanding of classical philosophy among the ancient Greeks we have only because those texts were recovered in the Renaissance from the Arabs. So essentially, we only know about, you know, we discovered Aristotle because someone else preserved them for us, not because we had any interest in them in the long term. So fundamentally, the values that we define as the basis of Western values, the Muslim world has just as much claim to these philosophers as we do, but yet, for some reason... We claim them as the pinnacle of Western achievement. In an article for The New Yorker called The Myth of Whiteness in Classical Sculptures, Margaret Tabelt talks about how actually for centuries now, art historians have noticed remnants of paint on classical Greek and Roman statues, but they've just been ignoring it or sort of coming up with reasons for why it was there in the first place. The truth is, is that actually the ancient Greeks and the Romans painted their beautiful white marble statues in kind of bright and garish colors, but we, you know, we tend to think of these white statues as the pinnacle of good taste and just as, you know, the pureness and whiteness. And she goes on in this article to sort of elaborate that through these statues, we sort of come to associate whiteness with goodness, and specifically through these statues have reinforced this stereotype within our head. The classicist Donna Zuckerberg wrote an essay called How to Be a Good Classicist Under a Bad Emperor, in which she talks about how specifically the modern alt-right in America has sort of claimed these statues for themselves. You know, you can see it in clips of, you know, like Ben Shapiro and Jordan Peterson sitting around talking about Aristotle and Sophocles and all this stuff and how this has really, for some reason or another, become a modern-day symbol of the modern alt-right. Yeah, and basically Donna Zuckerberg for writing this essay and for, you know, daring to call into question the goodness of this whiteness, she was so thoroughly attacked and ridiculed on the internet.
1: Yeah, it just highlights how strong and dominant this one-sided story is. So we are used to seeing everything, the whole of history through a kind of Western lens. So Mishra in his article says, well, actually, you know, the biggest event of the, of history in this century was actually decolonization, which we often don't really think about as like being the main history development the century. Or for example, the rise of China as an economic power has kind of shaped all of the West and the whole global situation that we're in now because of what happened as a result of China becoming an economic power in itself is that the unions were kind of gotten rid of, uh, minimum wage, uh, dissatisfaction in certain classes in the US and the rise of very nationalistic governments and all of this discord that's happening in the west is actually a result of china rather than the west shaping everything and everyone following the west which is like the traditional narrative so like in order to understand our entire global situation because we're living in this globalized world we have to see how everything is moving together it's not like the west is leading and everyone else is following we have this problem in like academia In newspapers, everything is still seen through the lens of a white middle aged man. And Karen Attia, in a recent article in the Washington Post called How the Western Medium Would Cover the US Election If It Happened in Any Other Country, shares a quote from Joseph Rawlings, a Ghanaian political scientist, who says If this were happening in Africa, the West would have been threatening aid cuts and sanctions to Trump and his officials. But in Africa, we do not have an out of control pandemic like America. And from where I stand, comparing Trump to Africans is an insult to Africans. And it's true when we think of even about newspaper coverage, we think about the fact that the US has reached 220,000 of a death rate and we're focusing on that so much. But nobody actually is talking about the fact that the continent of Africa is doing really, really well when it comes to the pandemic. Because they had Ebola and stuff before, and they have governments who know how to handle it, and for the most part, handle it quite well. And yeah, part of this is how we conceptualise, you know, history and good and bad, and the West is always good, and everyone else is sort of behind or whatever. But history is, you know, like you say, or is written by the victors. And when the British, for example, left India, or everywhere in Africa, where they left everywhere in fact... They burnt all the documents. There were massive fires. There was smoke, plumes of it just before they left because they did not want to keep any records. The thing about the Germans and the Holocaust is that the Germans kept the records and we can know what happened. With history, with what the British did abroad, they burnt all that stuff. So all we've got left is this narrative of, oh, the British went and brought railways to India and everything, which is not the full picture. Or if you look at the Middle East, we always look at it from a Western perspective and we always think of all this like sectarian violence and why can't all these groups live in harmony? But in fact, in the Ottoman Empire and stuff, Jews and Christians and Muslims were living in a formation where there was harmony. And also the fact is that in the West... There is still discord between different groups if you look at black people and white people in the US. I mean, it's just as bad as in the Middle East, but we don't associate those values with the West, but we do with the Middle East, so it's a whole biased way of thinking. And this is something that the scholar Osama Makdisi outlines in his book The Age of Coexistence, The Ecumenical Frame and the Making of the Modern Arab World. Where he goes into the history of this region and how we see it as sectarian, but there's a real history of anti-sectarianism within
0: this world as well, and there's not just one way or another way of looking at it. That's like you said, I, you know, history is written by the victors. In the same video essay on the West, Natalie Wynn talks about how she finds it incredibly harmful that we keep teaching the history of the West at universities, and she says, and I quote: "By teaching history of the Western universities and colleges, we reinforce this idea." That we are all part of a greater narrative, a sense that we are now part of a continuous civilization, and our crowning achievements are the Ten Commandments, Jesus Christ, the philosophy of Athens, Mozart, human rights, and science. But this is an essentialist conglomeration of a history that is much more non linear than we think. Daniel Walden, in his essay Dismantling the West, also addresses this by saying that in the 20th century there was a shift in education to popularize the narrative that Western books and European literature are the height of cultural achievement.
1: Yeah, and then we often think about Western ideas as the pinnacle of civilization. And when we look at everything in this really Western narcissistic way, we miss a lot of things. There was an article recently, I think in, in Science or The New Scientist, I can't remember, we'll link to it in our show notes, about how When the Europeans went to South America, they were kind of confused at the fact that, you know, they built these massive cities in gold. They knew what the stars were doing, but they had no writing system. And then they were like, oh, because they have no writing, they're not true civilization. And then recently they figured out that actually they did have a, a recording system and a writing system, except that it was all recorded in knots, in cloth and threads. And so there were these kind of intricate sort of tapestries made with lots of knots in them and they could be decoded by cross referencing with spanish accounts of battles and who died and all of that that they had you know this brilliant system of keeping records so like this these western criteria for what is civilization it must be what we do which is you know the ability to
0: write or
1: the invention of the wheel or
0: yeah well we look we think of the invention of the wheel as one of our crowning achievements isn't it when the wheel only makes sense if you're on a certain type of land. If you're living in the desert, a wheel is nonsense. Other civilizations came up with incredibly smart and intricate ways to transport things using water, using animals. Just the wheel doesn't make sense for them. Yeah,
1: and then for years, obviously, all the West were
0: like, "Oh, the Egyptians, why they didn't invent the wheel? That's weird." Because we also think of technology as a linear progression, but just the fact that like technology can be lost, advancements can be made. We we think of it as a steady upward climb when really it's... And a lot of history,
1: again, that goes back to what history is there and what has been lost and what has been destroyed. Like the South American, like the Inca things, all of that could have just been destroyed as well unless somebody spent however many thousand years, whatever, sort of trying to decode that stuff. So in light of all of this, our three things to be better human this week are... Number one, tell stories about different groups of people focus on different geopolitical areas tell the stories of marginalized groups so that we're not always just focused on the west number two read other stories from different publications so like not just the washington post the new york times i often go to al jazeera for a good global picture of what's happening as mishra says in his article we have to address the staggering imbalance of intellectual life that mimics larger asymmetries of social economic power across the globe. So a newspaper columnist in India, China, Ghana, or Egypt is unlikely to be recognized as an authority in global affairs unless she can demonstrate some basic knowledge of Euro-American political and intellectual traditions. And meanwhile, most Western scholars let alone newspaper reporters, don't even have a passing acquaintance with Indian, Chinese, African or Arab history and thought. And then the third thing, also inspired by the Mishra article, is that we have to interrogate the intellectual tradition that distorts our sense of reality and relearn world history with a recognition that the fundamental assumptions about the inferiority of non-white peoples have tainted much of our previous knowledge and analysis. That's a really big task, but if you're studying, if you're thinking about things, if you're in academia, it's really something that should be reckoned with.
0: Thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye.
1: If you like this podcast, please subscribe and share
0: it with your friends. And if you like, you can share your internet obsession with us. Tweet us and follow us on Instagram at the underscore misinformed or email us at misinformed.podcast at gmail.com. You can also subscribe to our newsletter. Find the link via our Instagram or our show notes. We are an independent, nonprofit podcast. If you would like to show us some love, you can give a one-off donation via SoundCloud or become a patron on patreon.com misinformed. Thanks for listening, and until next week.